Well, thank you for persevering and hanging around. It's a good sign of endurance. Appreciate that, especially after eating. So I understand if you feel like you're drowsing and falling asleep, don't worry, you're not going to offend me. Just pray that I don't fall asleep and then we're in real trouble. All right. As Jeremy, you all probably know about him and his family, uh, raised in a church in Kansas City where I served on staff for seven years. Uh, Our seven years there were great. Um, There were, as in all churches, good things, bad things. I hope the good outweighed the bad. But one of the best things about this church was its devotion to prayer. Uh, There were intercessory prayer meetings all throughout the week. Ann and I typically would spend at least six hours a week in corporate prayer meetings, sometimes very early in the morning, sometimes during the day, sometimes at night. There were times during the course of a year that our church would um, go on seven-day, 10-day, 14, even 21-day fasts in which we would devote ourselves to prayer almost exclusively. We saw incredible things happen as a result of that. And basically, it built into me. I mean, I always had believed in prayer, always had been devoted to it. But I think I took a lot of things for granted, and I was rather presumptuous with God. And I'm going to articulate a principle that I'm going to repeat over and over again throughout this course of this last session that I hope will register in your heart. And that is that we must never presume that God will do for us apart from prayer what he is ordained to do for us only through prayer. We must never presume that God is just going to do for us whether or not we pray those things which he said, I'll only do for you if you pray. So during those years there, there was built into me this understanding of the absolute necessity of prayer, that um, the, the things that we want God to do in our church, the things we want God to do in our individual Christian lives will never happen, at least to the degree that they should and could, unless we fervently, passionately persevere and endure in intercessory prayer. So if you think that some things are just going to come about just because that's the inevitable way things work. Without interceding to God, you're sadly, sadly mistaken. Now, I want to begin with a passage of Scripture, and uh, you can turn to it if you want. It's in Isaiah chapter 30, but let me just read it to you. That has always had a, a real impact on me because I have to confess for a long time I didn't understand it. It was directed, obviously, to the nation Israel at that time, but the principle is still valid today. Isaiah 30, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And then I immediately stop. I say, why? And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And I've always said, Lord, if you're so gracious and so abundant and so kind and so just, why are you waiting? Well, why don't you just do like the Nike commercial says, just do it. Why is it that he waits until he hears the sound of our cry? Why is it that he must first hear it before he blesses us? And it reveals something about the nature of prayer that's so important for us to understand. It's a principle that I find also in the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So why does God take such delight 
in our persevering prayers. And I think the reason is because prayer highlights the depths of our poverty, our helplessness, our dependence, and it magnifies the riches and resources of God's grace to give. When we pray and we are constantly coming before the throne of grace, we're putting on display how needy we are and we magnify God for the abundance of his provision to meet that need. So I want to talk for just a few minutes, and this session will probably be a little shorter than the others, about why we must pray, why it is not optional. And again, I think most Christians, and I'm guilty of this myself, I lived so much of my Christian life, and even as a pastor, arrogantly presuming, well, that's God's business. He's going to end up doing good things for me whether or not I ask him to. And sometimes he does. But how many blessings, how many glorious encounters, how many miracles have I missed out on because I failed to persistently ask for them? Now, let me just give you a couple of examples of how God does virtually nothing apart from the intercessory prayers of his people. In other words, almost everything that we experience from the Lord come as a result of our prayerful requests for them. God will rarely accomplish the desired goals he has apart from the means that he has ordained, and that means is prayer. For example, let me just give you some text. You can listen to these. The first one, you'll get more tomorrow because I'm preaching on it. Romans chapter 15, verses 30 through 33. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of God to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, just think of that. There's Paul talking to a church that he's never visited. I appeal to you by the Lord Jesus and the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers for me. Why? So that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, so that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Very clearly, Paul is saying, if you don't strive together with me in prayers, none of these things will happen. I need your intercessory uh, work before the throne of grace if I'm going to be successful in my ministry. And that's why we're going to talk tomorrow morning. The title of the message is Partnering with God Through Prayer to Shape the Course of History. Because the way God responded to the prayers of the people in Rome on Paul's behalf changed human history. And we'll see tomorrow how that works out. Another passage, and you may want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, this text has always uh, been an encouragement to me about the necessity and the role of prayer. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says beginning in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, he doesn't tell us what the affliction was, but listen to it. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. So Paul's saying, we had something, maybe it was persecution, maybe it was an illness, we don't know. But he said, I had one foot in the grave. The sentence of death had been passed, but God delivered us from such a deadly peril. And then listen, and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that by many thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Paul says, thank God he delivered us from this sentence of death, and I'm confident he will deliver us from such experiences in the future, but 
you've got to pray for us that that will happen. I've always thought, that, that seems really strange. If, if God is going to do what Paul says he has confidence that God's going to do, why does he need the prayers of the Corinthians? You know, it's whatever will be, will be. But that isn't the way Paul reasons. He asks them to ask God to intervene on his behalf to do what God has said he's already going to do. That's one of the mysteries of prayer. I can't, I can't unpack that. But he encourages them to ask God to do what God has already declared it's his desire and character to do. So Paul says, God will deliver us. We put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. Therefore, based on that assurance, would you intercede that God will do that very thing? That's just, in fact, it's interesting. Many think that uh, the opening part of verse 11 should be translated, if you help us by your prayers, provided that you pray for us, we're confident that God will do this that he has promised. So again, I, I, I try to unravel this kind of dynamic and I can't ultimately make sense of it, but I don't need to. I, it's obvious God has ordained the means of prayer to accomplish his desired goals and the expressions of his will. And if we presume that God's going to do these things and we neglect the ordained means that he's entrusted to us, we're going to find ourselves sadly disappointed. Whatever it is that you long for your church to experience or what you want to experience individually, if you do not make it a focus of persevering prayer, I don't give you much hope that it will come to pass. Now, like I said, God surprises us sometimes. He obviously in grace and mercy does for us what we don't deserve to have done, but it's presumptuous and sinful to go through life thinking that he's going to do that. Therefore, I can neglect all of the ordained means that he has set forth. Um, it's interesting when you think about the dynamics of this relationship, think about how everybody's blessed. The ones who pray, the Corinthians, they're blessed with the joy of knowing they have partnered with God in helping Paul live and succeed in ministry. Paul, the one who's prayed for, is blessed by being delivered from peril and death through the intercessory prayers of the people. And God, the one to whom prayer is offered, experiences the joy of being thanked by everybody when they see what he's done for the sake of the apostle. Everybody wins. Uh, there are a couple of occasions in Scripture, you may know of these, where Paul is in prison. It seemed like he was in jail most of his life. And he very clearly says that whether or not I'm going to be released is dependent on your prayers. You remember in Philemon, verse 22, he says to Philemon, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. So again, you think, well, whether or not Paul gets out of prison is up to the civil authorities, wherever he's being imprisoned. But Paul seems to be saying they are intermediaries. They're, they're just pawns in God's purpose. And if you'll intercede on my behalf, God will move on them and I'll be released. In fact, that's precisely what happened. Same thing in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is imprisoned. We don't know where. He's either in Caesarea or Rome. And he writes to the Philippians. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. You hear that phrase? Through your prayers. Paul doesn't say, look, you know, God has purposes for me and you don't need to bother. Um, if, if he wants me to go here or be released there, it'll happen. Toot sweet. Goodbye. Thank you. No, he says, if I'm going to be released, if I'm going to carry out my ministry, it's going to come because you have interceded on my behalf. The same thing in that passage in Romans uh, 15 that I read just a moment ago 
where Paul says, if I'm going to be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and in fact, we'll see tomorrow how he almost was killed, but because of the sovereign providential work of God in response to their prayers, he was delivered and eventually made his way to Rome. The simple fact is, folks, let's listen. If we don't ask, God doesn't give. And if God doesn't give, people don't receive. And if people don't receive, God won't be thanked. And if God is not thanked, God is not glorified. That's why prayer is so important. Which brings me to that passage that's always been a slap in the face. (laughs) James chapter 4. You do not have because you do not ask. It's so simple. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, James says, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions rather than for the sake of others and for the glory of God. So again, it's that assumption, that sinful, arrogant presumption that God is going to provide for us what we need, even if we ignore and neglect the means that he has put in place by which he wants to bestow it. I I won't read it, but you know that passage in Romans 10, where Paul talks about how shall they hear unless somebody preaches, how somebody preach unless they go, how shall they go unless they're sent. So what do we say? We say, well, God just wants to save somebody. He'll do it in his good time by whatever means he chooses. But that's not what Paul says. Faith is required for salvation. If there's to be faith, there has to be a message preached. If the message is going to be preached, there has to be a messenger preaching it. And if there's going to be a messenger, people have to send them. There are steps that God has ordained for us to accomplish his purposes. So I'm trying just to press in the point of the indispensable nature of prayer. Don't let yourself fall into the habit of thinking that, well, I'm happy to pray when I find the time or when I'm really burdened. Um, but, you know, God is good. He's patient with me. Um, he'll, he'll, he won't let my dereliction of duty interfere with the way he wants to bless me. Maybe that's true, but it's arrogant and sinful and presumptuous for us to think that way and to govern our lives on the basis of it. The fact is, there are things that you and I don't have for no other reason than that we have not persevered in asking for them. Now, I realize some people immediately ask at this point, but what if we ask for things repeatedly and God doesn't answer? God always answers. And I'm not just saying this is another Christian cliche. There's no such thing as unanswered prayer. There are different answers, sometimes ones that we don't want, but God always answers our prayers. Sometimes he he reserves the right to answer the request he knows we should have asked, but didn't. I mean, can you imagine if you answered the request of every one of your children? You know, if your eight-year-old son comes up and says, Daddy, I'd like a shotgun for Christmas. Well, you're not going to give it. Why? Because you know to answer that request is dangerous to him. Um, There are a variety of reasons why. Sometimes God says, yeah, I'm going to answer that, but it's the wrong time. You're not in the right frame of mind or the right spirit in which you could properly process this answer. We just have to realize that God has purposes that are infinitely wiser than we do. I mean, think for just a moment. What ultimately do you want to govern your life, your wisdom or God's? You think you're smarter than he is? You actually really believe you know what's better for you and your church than what God has in store? Well, if we really believe that God is wiser, we will trust that if he says wait, or if he says no, or if he says what's going to happen, but in a different form, we can trust his wisdom. Let me give you a personal example. Go back to the church that uh, the Linemans were in that I was a part of. 
when our senior pastor in 1998 announced that he was going to resign, he's going to start the International House of Prayer, I was absolutely convinced I was supposed to be the next senior pastor. I'd prayed about it. I knew I was qualified. I'm trying to be arrogant, but I, I you know, I've been in pastoral ministry for 20 years at that time. I said, I, I can do this. And I think God said, I know you can do it, but you're not going to. And I, I was absolutely confident that this was the next step in my ministry, in my life there. And the Lord just shut the door. He said, no, it's not. And I, for a long time, I couldn't quite figure out why was it that God would not have answered what seemed like a perfectly legitimate prayer to serve him in a way that would bring him honor and bless his people. And then I realized that when he shut that door, it was because he was leading me to assume a faculty position at Wheaton College. And if I had not gone to Wheaton College, the connections that I developed there would never have transpired. And I would probably never have eventually founded Enjoying God Ministries. And I would never have made my way to Bridgeway, where I served as senior pastor for 14 years, which has been the greatest blessing of my life. So, yeah, it was frustrating. It was confusing. It was disappointing that God said no to my request because he was saying yes to something even better that he had in store for me that could never have come to pass if he had answered that first prayer positively. So again, from God's perspective, he is always responding positively to us, oftentimes because he has something far better in mind at a different time when we're better prepared spiritually to embrace it. So let me do something here. I want to quickly run through this. I titled this message, Otherwise. What I mean by that is, otherwise, why we must pray. And if we don't, what happens or doesn't happen? So here they are real quickly. Number one, we must pray because otherwise God will not be glorified. Why do I say that? Because Jesus did. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We don't pray. God doesn't give. He doesn't get glorified. Number two, we must pray because otherwise you and I will not experience the fullness of joy that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to give. John 16, 24. Jesus said, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive in order that your joy may be full. So if you don't ask, you don't receive, you don't experience the joy that he's died and rose again to give us. Number three, we must pray because otherwise we will go without. Well, that's obviously a reference back to James chapter four and verse two. You do not have because you do not ask. Number four, we must pray because otherwise the gospel will not succeed. Do you know how many times Paul asked for prayer that his evangelistic ministry would be successful? 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Now, again, I think, God, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why wouldn't you just sovereignly, providentially make your word spread ahead and, and successfully engage unbelieving hearts and bring them to Jesus? Why do you need us asking you to do that? Because it magnifies him. It puts on display the abundant riches of his uh, love and his grace. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, at the same time, pray for us in order that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul said, I can't open those doors. Those opportunities will never come up unless you pray that God sovereignly intervene. Number five, we must pray because otherwise when we do attempt to preach the gospel, we're more likely to bring confusion to people rather than clarity. Now, why do I say that? Because Paul does. Right there in Colossians 4.3, listen to the whole verse. 
At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, folks, if somebody like the Apostle Paul requested prayer that he could speak the word boldly and with clarity, how much more do you and I need that? Number six, we must pray because otherwise we will remain enslaved to fear and cowardice and fail to preach the gospel at all. Again, it stuns me that Paul had to pray, said, help me that I'll be bold, that I'll have courage to share the gospel. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, pray for me that words may be given to me in, my op in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. <clears throat> How many times have you found yourself in a situation at work or with a friend or a relative at coffee, they don't know Christ, and you just want to be able to open your mouth and share the gospel with them, and you shrink back in cowardice and you keep your mouth shut, and somehow you justify it in your own mind. Would it not have helped had you prayed and you had other people praying on your behalf that the Spirit of God would grant boldness in that moment? Number seven, we must pray because otherwise the lost will not be converted. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10:1 about his Jewish kinsmen? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Number eight, we must pray because otherwise the church will experience hardship and face obstacles that hinder the fulfillment of our calling. I say that based on Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 2. I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. If we don't live peaceful, quiet, godly life, dignified, it is largely due to the fact that we probably haven't been praying for our governors, our senators, our presidents, no matter who you think ought to be in the White House or in the Senate or in the House of Representatives or serving as a mayor of your community intercede on their behalf. Number nine, we must pray because otherwise the sick will not be healed. Otherwise the sick will not be healed. James said it, you know, in James five, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anoint him with oil and oil in the name of the Lord. And then James five sixteen, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Why are people not healed? Number one, they're living in hidden sin, unrepentant, unconfessed. Confess your sins to one another, and they're also not receiving prayer. Confess your sins, pray for one another that you may be healed. Tenth and finally, we must pray because otherwise the demonized and the oppressed will not be set free. Again, in Ephesians 6, you know where Paul talks about the armor of God. Right at the end of it, he says, at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. He's saying the last piece of armor, as it were, that you have to bathe all of that is in prayer. Otherwise, Satan's fiery missiles raining down on Christian men and women will continue to wreak havoc. And then, of course, Mark 9, 29. You know, the story in Mark 9 where the man comes to Jesus with his young son. He said, um, my young son's demonized. He has been from his infancy. We can't do anything about it. I asked your disciples. They couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus, of course, proceeds to drive out the demon and heal the young boy. And the disciples come and said, what's up? Why, why couldn't we do this? 
And then Jesus makes this incredible statement. He said, this kind, in other words, this kind of demon, you bumped up against an extraordinarily powerful demonic spirit. This kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Now, let me kind of cap all that together by drawing your attention to maybe the most important statement Jesus ever made about prayer and why we have to persevere in it. Luke chapter 11. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, turn that around. Reverse it and state it in negative terms and feel the force of it. It means if you don't ask, it won't be given. And if you don't seek, you won't find. And if you don't knock, it won't be opened to you. And I've always read that. And I said, all right, Lord, how can, I, how can you be so confident in making that statement? How can I be confident that I'll receive the answers that you think are best for me if I continue to press in? And then this famous passage, you all probably know it well, immediately follows. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And then this incredible, unbreakable divine logic. If you then being evil, talking about us, even though you're evil and depraved and fallen, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? God, what beautiful words. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That, that logic is just, it, it's unbreakable. If, if, I mean, I know how selfish and wicked and fallen I still am, even as an old Christian, an old dad, and now grandfather. And yet, if my child or grandchild came and was hungry and asked for a fish, I'm not going to give him a snake. If he asks for a piece of bread, I'm not going to give him a stone. And if I can do that being evil, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is infinitely good, gracious, and righteous, give good gifts, preeminently the Holy Spirit, to those who ask him? Now, let me kind of wrap this up by talking just about um, the importance of endurance. And I want to draw your attention to a passage. I know you all are familiar with this, but I just want to unpack it with you and walk through it very carefully. Uh, it's had a massive impact on me. It's found, of course, in Luke chapter 18. Um, Jesus tells the disciples a parable. In fact, it very clearly says, verse 1 of Luke 18, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And you know the story that follows, but listen to it. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, stop right there. Can you imagine you go through life, and you die, and what's your legacy? You know, on his tombstone, he didn't respect men, and he didn't fear God. What a way to go. I mean, can you imagine that? See, the only thing that's said about him, he had no regard for other human beings. He had no regard or respect for God whatsoever. This is the kind of man we're dealing with here. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So here we have two people at opposite ends of the socio-political economic uh, spectrum. One is a judge in great power who obviously was wealthy enough and authoritative enough that he didn't need anybody's opinion. He didn't need anybody's help. He could do whatever the heck he wanted. And we had this lowly widow who had no friends, no advocate, nobody to go to court with her, nobody to argue her case. 
And here they are colliding. And we're told that for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, listen to this. This is him talking to himself. Although I neither fear God nor respect man. So here's the guy agreeing with the assessment of his character. He says, you're right. I have no regard for other people. I have no regard for God. My character hasn't changed one iota. You can't come before this judge and point at him and go, shame on you, because shame has no effect on him. He feels no shame. He's utterly indifferent to the needs of anybody but himself. You can't come and say, for God's sake, help this widow. He, he couldn't care less about God's sake. He didn't care about God's name or reputation. And he even admits it. Although I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, it's fascinating, that phrase, beat me down, that's actually used elsewhere in the New Testament to referring to a pugilistic punch. Now, I don't think he's saying, I'm afraid she's going to give me a black eye. He's just saying, she's just, in a sense, beating me down, wearing me out. Her perseverance is so overwhelming. She's so persistent. The only way I'm going to get her off my back is to grant her her request and grant her the justice that she is asking for. Now, here's the, the way in which um, people have misunderstood this parable. They have looked at this and they've said, oh, I see, God is like the judge and we're like the widow. No! The whole point of the parable is, God is not like the judge. He's good and gracious and kind and he does care for us. And we're not like the widow. We're not alone with nobody to stand by our side. We have an advocate, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father. We're the adopted children and the beloved of God. So the whole point of the parable isn't to compare God with the judge and you with the widow. It's to say, we're in the exact opposite case. Therefore, we ought to be all the more persistent in coming to him in prayer with our request. Because he's not like that stingy judge. He's not like a judge who's unjust, who only thinks about himself. He thinks about you. He has your best interest at heart. You're not like that widow. You have an advocate. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You have all the rights of a child who's been adopted by the Heavenly Father. So again, the whole point of that is to try to press in as much as Jesus can that, we, that this parable tells us that if a wicked, shameless judge grants the request of a helpless and hopeless widow, how much more? Will a good and generous God grant to his children the needs that they have that they bring before him? That's why we persevere in prayer. Now, again, I, I can't begin to explain all the reasons why God delays his answers or the reasons why sometimes he simply says no. I can give you a couple of quick words of explanation that might help. In the first place, I think God wants us to persevere in prayer because it cultivates dependency. If we immediately received absolutely everything from God in the way that we articulate it, we would become presumptuous. We would feel entitled. We wouldn't feel as utterly dependent on him as we need to be. So I think that's one reason why persistence is important. Secondly, persistence in prayer puts us in the proper frame of mind to receive from God what he wants to give. God may be willing and ready to give, but the bottom line is we're not ready to receive. We're just 
because maybe we're still inclined to exploit whatever gifts he grants us for our own sinful pleasures rather than for the blessing of other people. Another reason why um, he waits and sometimes doesn't answer immediately is because persistence in prayer serves to purify our petitions. Many times I've found that I've come to God with what I think is a great need, and I don't hear back from Him, and then I come back, and I come back day after day, week after week, and I find that as I do, the Spirit of God is disclosing to me in that process ill-conceived motives, selfish desires, uh, things that I'm asking for that ultimately wouldn't bring honor to God or a blessing to His people. Um, like I said, I'm writing a book on worship right now, and every single time I think I've gone to the end of it, and I go back and reread the manuscript, and I think, oh, there's another grammatical error. Ooh, I didn't say that right. Let me rephrase it. And the rereading, the, the constant rehearsal of it serves to purify and improve and refine it. That's what persistence in prayer does to your heart. So I think sometimes, again, God delays um, in that way. Also, like I said, it's just not his timing. He has desires to do good and great things for us, but the timing, if it were always up to us, would be disastrous rather than helpful. And by the way, folks, if after all is said and done, and you still don't understand why God hasn't answered at the time and in the way that you thought and hoped he would, just pray anyway. Just say, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand your ways. I can't decipher your intentions or your purposes, but thank you, Lord, you're not like that judge. And if you don't grant it to me in the way that I hope that you would, it's not because you don't have any concern for me. Um, I know that it's ultimately because your love is wiser and more powerful than anything I could possibly imagine. So, Father, <clears throat> we thank you for uh, <clears throat> the encouragement in your word about why we should pray, the necessity, the absolute urgency, the importance of perseverance. Lord, it, I just confess, Father, and before you and for these people, the easiest thing about prayer is quitting. It's the easiest thing to do. Prayer is hard. That's why Paul said, strive together with me. There's so many obstacles, so many reasons and excuses we think we have for giving up. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts and deeply in our minds how abundantly good and generous and kind and giving you are. Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary. We would not just throw up our hands and just say, well, I guess it's not in your purposes. It's not in your best will for me. Lord, until we hear you say, shut up or we die, we will continue to pray continue to ask, continue to press in. Help us, sustain us by your Spirit. Give us wisdom that we might ask for those things that are truly a blessing to others, to ourselves, and bring honor and glory to your name. Let people see in our prayer lives, both individually and as a church, that you are a great and generous and good God. And you do not just give out of your riches, you give according to your riches, in proportion to the infinite wealth that is in you as God. So Father, I just pray right now for those who are here who, are, who have been deeply burdened over time with various issues in their life or in their families or in their jobs 
or over illnesses that haven't been healed and the tendency to just quit, walk away. Spirit of God, I pray that you would impart to them right now a fresh infusion of your persevering presence and power, that they would cling to the goodness of God, they would cling to the teaching and the promises of Scripture. Help us, Lord, because if we don't pray, we know all the ill effects, all the blessings we otherwise might have had. So help us to press in. Help us to come before the throne of grace boldly, as the author of Hebrews says, to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And Lord, we ask all this so that Jesus would be glorified and honored in our lives and in our churches. Amen.